Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Joel Cummins, who will be sitting in for Matt Watson today. Hi, Joel. How's it going, Matt? Just doing my thing, baby. Just doing my thing. Um, I'm excited to have you here today. And our listeners don't even know why yet. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go ahead and introduce you, and then we can talk a little more. Um, Joel, you're someone I've known for over a decade, someone that participates in something that I am very passionate about, which is rock and roll. And, uh, and you as the keyboard player in my favorite band, Umphreys McGee. Wow. That's a nice intro. I'll what, take that. Did that set the expectations too high? <laughs> Hopefully not. But you know, Joel, there's a, uh, well, first off, thanks for coming in. You are playing a show here in Kansas city tonight. We are. We're playing at uh, crossroads yeah. and we're, uh, we're just starting a little, uh, three week tour here. Kansas City, Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, a couple dates in North Carolina, Baltimore, New York, Champaign, Illinois, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. The That's fact that you know that, the fact that you know all those names is impressive. Well, part of it is that uh, you know I was um, when the when we started out, I was kind of the the guy who booked the shows, and so as a result, I've just kind of um, always always kept uh, kept up with you know, all the different factors of what goes into making a decision about playing the right venue and the right, right city and the timing and all that. So, so I'm kind of the, uh, you know, the, the, the boots on the ground, so to speak. Uh, I find in general that knowing what city you're going to be on, on a given day is a plus. It helps. And now that we, uh, <laughs> now that we've played a lot of these places, a lot of times, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of friends and also people that, you know, we do, we do business with in, uh, yeah. in different places. And so, you know, that, that also, that, that person to person connection is still a really important thing in this business. I mean, just the other day I was in, uh, Denver, Colorado, and I, I thought, you know, I should just look and see what's going on in town. And, uh, and, Friend, uh, friendly band of ours, uh, Green Sky Bluegrass mm -hmm. was uh, was playing at Red Rocks, and so I wrote him and said, "Hey, what's up? I'm playing a, a show later tonight. You guys around? Want to hang out?" And the response back was, um, "Well, why don't you come up to Red Rocks and play a couple songs with us?" So and then that know. happened. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so you know, it, it pays to be aware of what's going on around you. So in regards to Umphreys McGee and your music, you guys just had uh, this is your 20th anniversary year, right? It is. It's yeah. a long time. It is. We've played about uh, 2,400 concerts over those 20 years. Wow. So we've, we've been doing it a long time, probably about 300 different original uh, compositions that we have out there, and we still play most of them live. There are probably 50 or 60 that we, uh, we've retired. Okay. Maybe we should. you should do a, an entire tour where you just only play those. <laughs> no, maybe not. I know you guys have a huge live repertoire. Um, you and I have known each other for a little while. Um, I think it's probably been about 12 years um, since when I lived in Washington, D.C., which feels like many lives and even a wife ago. 
Yeah, yeah, that was uh, one of my favorite uh, unsolicited e- unsolicited emails that I've ever gotten from you, <laughs> saying it was the first one too. My name's Matt, and I want to bring an acoustic piano to your show for you to use without any charge at all. And I said, okay, what's the catch here? And there wasn't one. Well, and, and now I know what it is. Here I am at the uh, Startup yes. Hustle podcast. I it's said, all come to this. It was much like the mafia. I was like, I don't need anything now, but someday I will call <laughs> on you for a favor. And this was it. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad that I'm finally cashing in on that. I know that I, 12 years of waiting was, created a lot of anxiety, but now I can I can live free. But no, it, you, I have a history in... A, opposite part of the music industry is you like you're you're a performer you're a creator of content i actually worked and for those of you that uh, aren't totally familiar with my story i met joel because i had some association with uh the distribution of yamaha uh, products and then later i worked for roland the world's largest manufacturer of electronic musical instruments which is nuts you know roland sells like five billion dollars a year worth of stuff no big deal crazy no big deal so they do a lot of cool stuff, but yeah. So, uh, you know, that being said, um, we're a similar age. We're both fans of Notre Dame sports and you actually went there, although I'm just a subway alumnus, as they <laughs> like to say, but no, I've always had a passion for what you guys do. I, I, uh, I was a fan of the genre, but what you guys did was really provide something that I found a lot of passion in. and, and, you know, um, I actually listened to your live music when I work almost every day, um, it's, it's not for everyone in the regards that some people don't like a 15 minute song. Right. I do. Yeah. Um, We're, we're, we're much like uh, scotch, you know, it's an acquired taste. Sure. But people that like it tend to love it, to really love it. So I guess just a quick kind of explanation of what we do. We're a rock and roll band that does a fairly significant amount of improvisation in our live shows, but we, we have a really uh, wide stylistic approach to what we do. So some of the music is a little, um, is, is like straight ahead rock. Some of it is a little more on like the, the, the jazz side. Some of it's a little dancier. Some of it's a little heavier. And from night to night, we, uh, we rotate our set list of shows and never the same, never the same. So as a result, um, yeah, every single show is different, and we have a we have a pretty good um, audience of people that six members, six members in the band, and uh, yeah, and we we've developed an audience over the years that likes to travel to shows, and yeah. we'll you know we'll go back and forth. Lots of uh, lots of people have seen like over fifty shows, which is pretty cool. I, I might be close to that over the years. I mean, you, yeah, I'd and say you so. Look at it, I'd I don't know. So. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I, I I don't know. I have a guitar case that I have. Uh, stuck my backstage passes on that is basically covered um humble so, brag yeah well no it's just kind of weird because i just like the very first show i went i just like stuck the after show like like vip sticker on the guitar case and i kept doing that for years it was just covered with a lot of stuff so it was uh it was uh yeah thanks for all the all the good times so <laughs> all right so music is a tough way to make a living it, it, that's just the reality of it right and you guys have found a way to create success. Um, It's not that I'm just a fan of your music. I'm a fan of your business. And I've always admired, okay, having worked in and around the music industry, I have to be realistic when I say that eh, not all musicians have their shit together. Yeah. Well, Well, most people in general don't. (laughs) True. 
Well, it takes a uh, it takes a good team for us to really produce what we're doing. But uh, I think one of the important points about it is that first and foremost, we're we're concentrating on the the product, on the music yeah. itself. Yeah. Because you can have a great promotional team, but if you don't have music that really connects with people or isn't great, it doesn't matter how good your promotional team is. So yeah. it's, it's always got to start there and, and that's got to be the focus. And yeah. And I agree. And you guys, and, and I say that because everything from the marketing to the execution of tour to all of it, including the fact that every member of your band, which is in my uh, opinion, a world-class musician doesn't settle for that and continues to push it and practice and stuff like that. So, okay. Well, anyway, here you are and we've now introduced what you do. How'd, the, how'd this all get started, Joel? Let's go back to the beginning. So, yeah. um, when we originally started as a band, we were a four piece and the way we got together was Mike, the original, uh, drummer from Mumphreys. He, uh, he left the group in 2002. That's the only membership change we've had in the past 16 years. It's impressive. So, um, Mike and I were in a band together called Stomper Bob at Notre Dame, Brendan and Ryan. Uh, I, I think I said this, Mike was the drummer. I'm the keyboardist. Um, and Brennan, who's our singer and guitarist, and Ryan, who's the bassist, were in another band called Tashi Station. And so we had had a couple, you know, late night get togethers where, you know, we went over to somebody's house and, and just played for a few hours and things like that in uh, probably early 1997 to, you know, to the fall of 1997. And one day I got a call from, uh, from Brennan saying, Hey, could we take you and Mike out to dinner? We want to talk to you about something. And so we went out to dinner and they said, listen, we want to do this for a living. We don't want to graduate from college and go on to some, you know, some job working for a big company. Are you guys interested in, in doing something like that? And we were. So that moment right there of having that connection of, okay, here's two people that have approached us that you know, we have the same goal of, can we do this for a career was a great start. So, uh, we said, yeah, let's try it. And we went back and quit our band and, and our band was going to be something that ended that year. Anyway, right. it was, you know, people that were going on to do different things in the business world. And so you had a startup. So we had a startup and I, mean, I think that that's fair to say. And, and, you know, when it comes to music and wanting to do it for a career, we have to put quotes around the word career. Like you have to generate some kind of revenue from that. And, you know, I, and that's can be difficult. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Um, and where do you take it to the next level? But clearly that started with finding people that were, that had the same end result in mind. This is what we want to do. Exactly. And, you know, at that point we still didn't really know musically if things were going to really gel. Um, it takes a long time of it takes playing more than just four people saying, this is what we want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it takes, you know, you're looking at two different things, especially for us with wanting to explore improvisation. It was how do we play together as a group? And then there's the other aspect, which is arguably even more important. Can we write decent songs together and yeah. can we produce content that will make people not just say, Oh, I want to come see them again because I like how they improvise. Oh, maybe, you know, there's actually songs and lyrics and things that we like that we want to sing along with. So, um, I think that was another big part of it. So immediately, um, before we had a gig, we took an entire month and worked on material, 
learned some covers, um, you know, did anything we could to put together so that we had a complete like two and a half to three hour show. I've, I've never asked this. What was the first real Humphreys McGee song? Do you know? It's, it's kind of it's kind of debatable because at our first show we I think we played I want to say like eight or nine maybe ten original tunes. Um, That's a lot after a month. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and a, a couple of them we had from each other's respective bands okay. that we said, okay, I, I like these songs that you guys are doing. You guys like these songs that we're doing. Let's at least use these as a starting point. Um, Mike and I wrote a song called Kimble that we still play. Yeah. Uh, Today. And that's that's a piano heavy song too, isn't it? Or doesn't it at it's, least start that yeah, way? Yeah, it starts yeah, with yeah, piano. Yeah. It starts with piano. It's a big uh, guitar solo in the end, but okay. um, but that was one that we wrote. I mean, to me, that was the first kind of intentional song that that we wrote for the band. Um, and we did that over uh, like the the holiday break in December of '97. Uh, I'm. Yeah, that's right. December of 97. So, um, so we got together, you know, and we were playing, we recorded all these rehearsals, recorded all these songs that we were trying to write so that we could go home and work on them on our own too. And, you know, memorization is a huge part of being able to get out there and perform. So, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of how things got going. And one of the important things I think from uh, a business standpoint is that, I had been the one that was booking all the shows for Stomper Bob. And so I had established relationships. We were in South Bend, Indiana, students at the University of Notre Dame. And so I had established relationships with probably five or six different clubs to where we could play, which was really useful in the beginning because we weren't traveling to play shows. We were all, we were playing locally, you know, nobody looks at South Bend, Indiana and says, there's a good place to start a band. But the reason why it was really great you might for us, be the most famous band that started in South Bend, Indiana. Um, is there another others? Well, Ted Leo is uh, uh, from there. I don't know if you know uh, Ted know. Leo. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, he was a little more in like the indie scene. And so, uh, so here in college, you were studying music in college. Yeah, I, I got a degree in uh, music theory from uh, from Notre Dame with a concentration in piano performance. What so, the, what was the name of your thesis piece again? Uh, I'm not even sure if I can tell you, but it was it was something about uh, <laughs> something weird. the the idiosyncrasies of a Schubertian sonata form and uh, like modulatory techniques. And so, the next episode of Startup Hustle, Joel <laughs> will be breaking down what that exactly is. The uh, the Umphrey's McGee song two by two actually uses one of those uh, modulatory techniques in the end guitar solo. It's so, always uh, been one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> so I did did actually apply my uh, college degree to my career. Um, you know, my, my, my parents could at least say that <laughs> we're, uh, we're Brendan and, uh, and Mike and, uh, uh, Ryan also music students. Um, Mike and Brendan were, and, um, Ryan was a business major or something like that, wasn't he? Or yeah. And he, lines. he actually got a, I think it was, um, uh, like advertising in Japanese or something were mm. his, his majors. Mm, okay. <laughs> so Hajime Mashite, we can, yeah, uh, we yeah can, I was uh, going to say you have a song right. with the Japanese. Doesn't that mean like, hello, nice to meet you? Or exactly. It's, it's also the extent of my Japanese vocabulary. <laughs> okay. So now you're okay. So you're, you found some people that have some common goals and you know what you want to do and you've set forward, you've created a plan, which is basically your first set list in some ways is, the the product 
that's associated with your business plan. Now you have to get into executing it. You were just talking about having some relationships, but there's a huge difference between growing a local audience and playing local gigs and going anywhere else. Cause like you said, here you are in South Bend. Um, maybe people in Indianapolis have heard of you at that point. But no, you gotta, definitely not. Definitely and not. That's I mean, only these, a couple hours away. These were, these were our friends that were coming to the shows in the beginning. So yeah, it was definitely, um, how do you transition from, just having your friends show up to actually making fans. And, and I remember a huge difference. People think that this part of music is easy and it is not. First off, it's hard to get 50 people to come and see what you do for free. Getting people to even pay five bucks is now a completely different animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, we started out in South Bend. Most of the nights we were playing, I was able to get us a $500 guarantee to play the show. And the cost of living in South Bend was such that, that was okay and kind of made things work. I mean, I think I was paying 150 bucks a month rent. So, um, you know, that's not very realistic these days in places, but that is a reason why it was actually really good for us to be in South Bend because we didn't have to pick up a 40 hour a week job to help supplement what we were doing. Um, a couple of the guys, you know, had, um, like for instance, I was working at a, uh, at a church kind of, um, Sorry, playing, you were the pianist. Playing the piano yeah. for some services and directing the kids' choir. And Is anything from that on tonight's set list? <laughs> I don't think you're going to see any uh, St. Anthony Parish uh, material tonight. So. Um, so, so how did you be, did you sit down and make a plan and create it, or did you just kind of jump and build wings? So our, our first goal, um, after we kind of started seeing success in South Bend, and again, it was still, even after a year, it was probably 75% of our friends, but we definitely did start to make some fans of people that were coming out because they liked the music and, you know, they liked the scene or whatever. Um, but our first goal, we, we thought, okay, let's try to move to Chicago because this is the closest cultural hub of where things are happening. It's still very central in the country for when we want to start touring, but we started. And what year was this approximately? This, this is probably, you know, late 1998, early 1999 saying let's plan to move in um, June of 2000 when Mike, the youngest member of the band graduates from Notre Dame. So we started touring in concentric circles kind of around Mm -hmm. South Bend. And let's define concentric circles. So in other words, going out from the closest point and, and eventually the circle becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so, uh, we, we sent out back in the day, you know, it was, it was tapes or CDs that we were, we were sending out ahead of time. And fortunately with university of Notre Dame, we did have friends that were living all over the country. So Mm -hmm. that was really helpful, um, in kind of getting those, um, getting the, getting the reach a little bit further. Now in 98, there was no streaming music, right? Um, yeah. had Napster even come out yet? No. Definitely okay. Not. So the, the distribution of music today is remarkably different. The industry is, is completely changed at that point in 1998, any concert or ticket that you had was like, no cameras, no recording, no nothing, blah, blah, blah. And the, and if you, so for example, I remember there's a, a store here in Kansas city called seventh heaven and they sell bootlegs. And I remember going down around that time of my life and like buying a fish CD of a live show and just like, like I, and thinking, my God, I just wish I could get more of this. And it was so difficult at the time, whether it was, you know, bootlegged or not. So you've got it now trying to establish growth and trying to build 
the following, you've got to overcome a supply chain problem. Right. And how did you guys do that? Well, you know, the first thing is that we realized from the get-go, we were going to be earning most of our revenue through concert, you know, playing shows and and the money that came in from that. That's still the case, isn't it? Still the case. Absolutely. And we have a, you know, much more significant uh, merchandise revenue now. Sure. But, um, but it was, you know, this model didn't really change for us where the the recorded music or whether it was a live show or a studio recording was much more of an advertisement for the live show right. than the other way around and back then the major labels were uh, completely against that so um so you know we were kind of going against the grain in that sense however um you know bands like the grateful dead or fish they had done a similar sort of thing where we actually encourage tapers and we we uh still do this where we give five tickets a night away to anybody who is a taper and wants to bring their rig, record the music and distribute it. Because now, on top of that, you do that yourself too, right? Yeah. Right, we do that ourselves too. And we do. At, at uh, what point did you start doing that? Because when I first saw you, I remember the the towers of CD burner things, and <laughs> right. like I could, I, I yeah. just thought it was such an amazing thing that I could leave the show and listen to the show on the ride home. It, it was a really cool thing for us, and it was probably around 2002 or 2003. So, Were those the first real recordings? About four or five years into the band. No. Well, we'd been recording them um, onto cassette tapes. So, you know, we would do that and distribute them uh, via cassette tapes. And, you know, one of our kind of more uh, noteworthy um, experiments in this was our first trip out to Colorado in 2001. And so ahead of us going out there, we knew probably – 10 to 15 different people that lived out there. And so what we did was we sent each of these 10 to 15 people, like 25 tapes and said, give, give these, out. give these to everybody, you know, anybody you think that might be interested in it. We showed up at a club called trilogy in Boulder, 200 person club and sold it out. And that was, you know, kind of, a, was a, that a real, moment where you realized you could do it? Yeah. Well, that was a big affirmation in, and also the process of what we were doing and like, Oh wow, this is actually working. And were, were you starting to think long at that point? Like, like let's try to think of this as a lifetime venture. I mean, was, were, was that already in the conversation? Well, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we kind of, we set some annual goals for, you know, here's what we need to do, but for the most part, I mean, until probably 2004 or five, we were still going month to month. Yeah. And it was all about how much revenue do we need this month to make sure nobody has to go get a job. So, and, so at this point now you're having to look at the scalability of what you're doing. You're having to, and now here's the thing, like you have some really smart people, not only in the band, but in your organization. And I have to feel that at this point, like, so Vince, your manager, Vince Awinski, yep. um, who's still Yep. He and he and Kevin Browning are are, originally uh, a sound man. Right. He and Kevin are our co-managers. But let's go back to 1998 uh, just for a minute, because, um, you know, as I'd mentioned, I'd kind of been the guy that was that was booking the shows. And, you know, I I looked at the four of us in the band and thought, okay, our biggest chance of success is if I try to do as much of the managerial sort of, you know, agent type duties. Pretty common in a startup. (laughs) Yeah. Got to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Got to wear a lot of hats. And as somebody with a little bit of experience in that, I, you know, obviously we, we realized we have to be able to make money to make this work. And, you know, and very quickly it became apparent that once I tried to book a tour, I mean, this was 
probably 1999 when we did our first real summer tour out to the East Coast. Um, but in 98, Vince, um, who, who, as we mentioned, is our manager, uh, approached us and said, listen, I really believe in you guys, and I'm going to be moving to Chicago and working for AT&T uh, in the beginning. However, I would really like to be the manager of this band, and I hope that you will give me the chance to do that, and you know, we can gradually work me into this position, and hopefully in a short amount of time, I won't need that AT&T job anymore. I, I, I've talked to Vince about this and like printing copies for shows right like there on the company. Right. And I always think about uh, old, yeah. old school. Printing flyers. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the movie old school. Yeah. Like, right. Right. You know what? I can't, what, whatever his name is, is he's printing flyers. He's like, Hey, I heard you have a fraternity. He's like, no. What do you mean? He's like got flyers shooting out of the copy. <laughs> so, yeah. At some point he did jump and build wings too. I think he walked from that job and took a big chance. He did. Yeah. And like cash in his 401k and, you know, was like, okay, let's, let's do this. But, um, you know, he, uh, from the, from those first couple of years, then 98, 99, he and I kind of, worked hand in hand, um, both booking shows, making sure that the awareness was out there. And, you know, I think that's another big thing is people, you, you know, they hear the band and they're like, okay, I'm excited about it. You have to encourage them like, Hey, listen, we need you to tell your friends yeah. and to get the word out there because we have to keep getting more new people to come see this or it's not going to work. I hope that the people listening to this right now choose the same for this podcast. <laughs> uh, tell all your friends, hit the like button. That's uh, right. Uh, post That's right. the link. Yeah. All right. And so, and you can check out the Umphreys website, www.umphreys.com, U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S.com. I'm on social media at Gold Like Joel. That's both uh, Twitter and Instagram. Lots of uh, entertaining dialogue, music, sports. Jokes. I, I want to <laughs> jokes. Um, sometimes reading hateful tweets. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 I like to engage most of the uh, <laughs> haters too. I think it's fun. Um, it, you know, a lot of these things. I think nowadays in social media, it's you're more likely to make an outspoken statement because yes. you, you're yeah. not looking somebody face to face. But uh, I, anyway, I do <laughs> also want to point out that at gold, like Joel at on Twitter has earned his gold shoes for me. Um, and as you know, that's, that's like the Matt DeCourcy uh, award of excellence, but yeah, the uh, proud owner. Yes. But the, I, wore, I wore them on stage in uh, Oakland, the home of the golden state warriors. Did you? I did. Okay. I'm glad to know that. I, you know, I didn't know that until now. Um, actually, I'm, I have a pair of gold shoes for your bass player tonight, um, largely because he wears the same size as I do. And I've been promising him a pair for a couple of years. So I'm going to I'm going to make good on that. I um, love it. Okay, yeah. But so, so so here you are. You're at this point. You're like, I mean, let's be realistic, man. Let's paint a realistic picture here. Um, you're riding around a van with a bunch of other people. Yep. And maybe even towing PA gear at some point. Oh yeah. Like a oh, whole yeah. lot of other stuff. Well, How do you make the jump? Well, you know, there were no clubs in South Bend that we played that even had an in-house PA. Yeah. So we had to do everything on our own. We bought our own PA. We brought our, bought our own monitor gear. And so with that, of course, you got to have somebody who's running it. it and hooks it up. Well, and, and we were also built, yeah, we were doing all that. Yeah. We were, you know, breaking everything down every night. And I mean, to the point where we lived in not a great area in South Bend. And so we would rehearse in our basement with all our gear. And then before the show, we would pack everything up, put it in the, uh, in the trailer, get to the show, unload it, set it up. 
at the end of the night, un- you know, break it down, put it back in the trailer, and then drive back home and unload it back into the basement every single night. Because if we left it in the trailer, it would have gotten broken into and oh all of our God. stuff would have gotten stolen. So that sounds terrible. I always, I always <laughs> tell people that, in my opinion, uh, as a musician, you know you're either starting to make it or have made it when you don't have to do any of that yourself. You right. Have someone right. to actually like set it up, tear it down, and run it. And that, that wasn't really until about 2004 or five for us. So, and so that's year six yeah. at this point. Yeah. So in the um, interim, we were playing, you know, 150, 160 shows a year. We're driving ourselves in a van. Um, and, you know, we, we bought a van, which was a huge thing. We didn't even buy the van until 2002. We were driving around in a Suburban, uh, which was Kevin Brownings, who is our front of house engineer, now manager. And one, one of my favorite things that he said to us when we started taking it out, he's like, okay, guys, you know, uh, I'm planning to, uh, to have this, this truck here for my, uh, for my family someday. So please treat it with the utmost respect. And you know, that, that suburban was trashed within about a year and a half, but, uh, Fortunately, he, he does have another car to drive his kids around now. But um, well, I did uh, I did pick you up on your tour bus today. <laughs> yeah, so, this is true. so so for those that, that are concerned, Joel has found an improved method of transportation. <laughs> okay, but, so here you are. So it, it, now back to the realism of this. At some point, did any of you ever want to quit? Well, because you're probably not making a ton of money back then. Yeah, there you know there were really. Um, there were really kind of two moments for, for me. The first one, um, we were really blindsided by Mike deciding to leave the band. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Can we talk about that? For sure. Just a second? Sure. Cause, sure. cause this is, you know, and we're trying to keep this still startup related, but there's only one thing that's certain it's, and that's that things will change. Right. And you don't know who's going to come in, who's going to leave, what's going to happen. You guys are trying to figure it out. You know, yesterday, uh, we were, we or a couple episodes ago, we were talking about what is a startup and, and some of the things that we came to the conclusion of is you're no longer a startup when the risk is gone and when things are, are not truly solidified. So when you have a major change and in a band, losing your drummer is like losing your operating system and software. I yeah, mean, in a lot yeah. of ways, it's like it, it's a major thing. Well, and, and so much of what made us what we were was that group chemistry. And you, you never know if you're going to be able to find that again. I think that's that's something that's really important too. Um, so, uh, looking at the year 2002, we had played the first Bonnaroo for you know we'd performed for like 10,000 people. Um, we just put out really our first true studio album, and um, Jake joined the band, our lead guitarist, in 2000. And we'd kind of been playing shows with his old band, Alibaba's Tahini. So Umphreys and Alibaba's played shows together before that. They stopped really playing a lot of shows, and that, then we invited Jake to come play with us. We knew that was going to be a huge addition for the band, and it yeah, totally kind of good. Uh, <laughs> so, for, for those of you that are interested in learning a little more about Jake, um, a year ago he and I sat down and did a video that's on my YouTube channel um, where it was we were just talking about excellence because Jake's a workhorse when it comes to practicing and rehearsing and stuff like that. Yeah, Jake Sinegar is you know he started out as a drummer um, and then picked up guitar, which really informed his his amazing rhythmic ability yeah. later yeah. on. But so now you've got another now you've got another mouth to feed. Right, that too, of course. So um, so anyway, two thousand two, we played the first Bonnaroo. We really put out our first um, our first album that we did ourselves that we we took you know, two weeks in a studio, we slept in the studio, like on the floor and, you know, recorded what we thought were all of our best songs. 
we showed up at Bonnaroo and did the release there and sold like over 600 CDs in Bonnaroo. Mm, not bad. Um, and was that local band does okay? Local band does okay. I, which, by the way, I think is a <laughs> freaking great title for we, for an album. We've yeah. we've achieved a lot of um, self deprecating jokes over the years. Our first, I think it's funny. Our first album was called Greatest Hits Volume Three. You know what? I, um, yes, that 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 was good too. <laughs> uh, you know, another thing too is, um, and I think we should get into this. Um, I think I've heard every member of your band express some regret about the name. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, let's let's get onto that next. Okay. Let's let's finish this thought about. So, two thousand two, um, we we played some. Uh, I think we just played the Barrymore in Madison, which is uh, about a nine hundred person kind of old converted theater and sold it out. So well, that's a pretty big venue at that point. Nine hundred people buying tickets. Is absolutely, a lot, yeah. And you know, I think we did about. Uh, we'd sold out the. Uh, the park West at this point, we maybe were playing like the house of blues, which is about 1300 people in Chicago mm -hmm. sold that out. So we'd started to see some really good success in these little concentric circles around the Midwest. Right. Um, and even Colorado and New York a little bit, it kind of started to pick up. So, um, so we could see the road in front of us, you know, kind of like, okay, this is finally happening for us. And, and then, boom, big and then uh, end of September in 2002, yeah, uh, we were on the road in the middle of a tour, had a night off, and uh, and Mike, we were eating dinner and watching Monday Night Football. And Mike said, yeah, guys, so, you know, I've got some major life decisions, and I think I want to be a doctor. And we weren't sure if he was joking at first. He was kind of, you know, so that, jokes that was the a band. true blindside in that regard. Like, oh yeah. You, he'd never expressed any interest in change. Or? No. And, you know, and he definitely in the month leading up to it, I mean, he, he'd kind of been, you know, going through a little bit of a rough spot. And I think the touring lifestyle was harder on him than it was for the rest of us. Right. Um, but that was certainly not something that any of us expected. And so, you know, the, the end of that tour was just, I mean, it was an emotional train wreck. There was crying, there was yelling. Was that the end of it? Was it, it um, happen that quickly? I mean, was it just like well, a few he, shows later? Here's, here's what he said to us, which uh, I definitely respect. He said, you know, I'm going to do the, um, the, the rest of the shows this year with you guys, and I'm happy to help be part of the process to try to find someone to replace me if you want me to help you. And it's not a terrible exit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's at least considerate, yeah. which oftentimes they aren't. Yeah, yeah, true. And definitely in bands. I've heard of yeah. much worse endings with people that I know. Like in the middle of the show. <laughs> yeah. Or the night before your three-week tour is supposed to begin. Yeah. yeah. Also not good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, the rest of us got together that night and the five of us and we said, okay, well, let's ask each other right now. Are, you, moment. are yep. you guys still into this? Do you yep. still want to do this? And, you know, we went around in a circle and talked about it and everybody was still a hundred percent in. So the fact that we at least still had that solidarity, even when, you know, one person decided this wasn't for them, um, was really big. And it turned out, um, we found Chris, do, uh, as a result, Chris Myers, who's the, you know, the current drummer and, it was literally out of the like hundred or so packages that we got. Once we started soliciting, it was the first one on I the think pile. That's a, that's a crazy story. You know, Chris is a, is really scientific and great at what he does. Like, and I say scientific is you don't meet a lot of drummers that have a master's degree in drumming. Yeah. Right. And his, uh, yeah, his, his palate and diversity are probably the, 
the widest among anyone that I've played with. And yeah, Chris is he's good, and that's a, and for a band like yours, it's a key ingredient because there's a lot of rhythmic changes, and and it's not just like a four minute like, hey, we're gonna just stop after four minutes, and then obviously there's a lot of material to learn, and then any for those of you that aren't and you know that aren't musicians, well, there's going to be some style changes. It's just a little different right. with what you do. You right. got, you, there has to be a lot of anticipation and understanding in order to not make it suck. Yeah. Is that fair? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> that's absolutely accurate. So, you know, we then took December and most of January to work with Chris. He had to learn, you know, it was probably 75 songs at that point. So, you know, we probably learned 30 or 40 of them and then jumped right in and started writing new material. And, I think immediately, um, well, number one, you know, his personality clicked with us. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's another big thing. You know, you're looking at, you're like, okay, stylistically, is this guy's uh, approach going to work? Yeah. And we're like, okay, yeah, it is. And it's going to expand what we can do significantly. And then you're like, okay, um, do I envision myself being able to hang out uh, 20 hours a day with this guy for the next 20 years? This is a big point. <laughs> especially when it comes to startups, because your bandmates are your partners. They are your business partners. And when it comes, you know, we, a few episodes ago, we did an episode on bad business partners and how to try to avoid them. And one of the things was, would you go on vacation with this person? And like for what you do, let's be realistic, dude. Like you are in some close confines. Yeah. With you, I mean, you're on tour buses, like all these different things. Like not all of these venues have the most spacious backstage area. Right. So you're going to have to get along with these people and not want to kill them or have them kill you. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge thing. And a lot of it is, you know, get taking the time to get to know the people that you're a bandmate with and working with and understanding you know, every single person is going to have a, a different way that th they can express themselves or that they want to, uh, that they want you to talk to them. And so every single one of these is kind of a different little relationship that they all need attention from every single person to each other to make sure that everything is, you know, running, uh, as smoothly as possible. So, um, so yeah, that, that was, that was a huge moment for us. And when, you know, and it was cool for Chris because he was able to jump into something that already had the wheels in motion yeah. and a lot of the groundwork was already laid. So, you know, he, he missed the first four years of like really, really grinding. And I've actually talked to him about some of this over the, just loosely over the years, but you know, Chris wanted to be involved with people that were passionate about music as well. Right. And, and with his, his educational background and like, uh, and I've talked to you about this as well. Like, I think he brought a, an element of structure and approach to it that you all appreciated as well. Oh, yeah. There was a level of, of seriousness and dedication to minutia and detail that really, really helped us um, go going forward. But, you know, he wanted to be a studio musician, which is also interesting because that side of the business has kind of dried up a little bit. And that's well. really hard to do. Yeah. That's like, like, hey, like you get two takes. And you're going to have to play something that you might not even know. Well, and even harder than that is just the sustainability of yeah. it, you know, of continually having to find more work. And then, you know, you commit to something and then something else comes up and you can't do it because you committed to X, you know, whatever it is. But um, fortunately, he was open, into, open to being into the uh, touring model of a band, you know, and he just said, this was never what I thought I was going to do. Right. Um, but well, that worked uh, out. It worked out. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and so anyway, um, 
we so were now, now you hit the ground running for round two and you've everyone's committed everyone's in and now you gotta like take this level of awareness and relationship building to like a whole nother level absolutely and um I think, you know, the, the, the big changes after that, obviously in the, uh, the music world, we didn't have an agent that was, that was booking us. It was still Vincent me doing all of that work until 2001, I think, uh, at which point we connected with Armand Sadlier vision international, and he had, um, he had booked a lot of the kind of bigger bands in our scene. Let's talk about what a booking agent does. They do exactly. They try to get you shows. Yep. They're trying to get us shows and we say, Here's three weeks that we can tour, put a tour together Do for work. us. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so put, that's kind of the, the, you know, the small part of the vision. And the big part of the vision is put us on a tour so that six months from now or a year from now, we can go back to these places and succeed further, you right. know, and, or, you know, ideally sell out the smaller venue and then we're able to move up to a bigger venue. So I think this is a good spot to talk about the scaling aspect of it a little yeah. bit. Um, Even though we skipped the name part. Okay. We'll go back to the name yeah. still. We yeah. will. That can be the but, thrilling conclusion <laughs> later because I think that's a fun topic. So scaling. But scaling's um, hard. Scaling's hard because you have to try to take this limit, oftentimes limited sample space. And, you know, like there's just a lot of unknowns. Like, do you know at this point, do you know how much gas on a tour bus is? Right, right. How much yeah. renting it or buying it or leasing it. And like it's, all these things are very, have a lot of variables or maybe even the price of the fuel. Yeah, right. The, I mean, looking back that 1999 summer tour, gas was a dollar a gallon. And now it's, you know, what, three to four, yeah. depending on where you are. Um, but, um, you know, we, we started with the, the four musicians. Andy joined the band very soon after we started. We were five. And then, um, and then once Jake joined the band in 2000, we were six people. So six musicians, which is a very large band. Um, and then, you know, we identified, okay, we've got Vince in management. And uh, very soon after that, Kevin Browning was doing our front of house, mixing the sound. Um, that's a hugely important person to have because a lot of times you're playing smaller clubs. These people are either inexperienced or don't care. Yeah, and, or both. Or both. And, you know, if you want people to come see your band again, you it needs, you, it can't, need, you can't sound like crap. Yeah, it needs okay. to sound good. Let's put, I'm, I'm writing that down. Can't sound like crap. Okay. Um, so yeah, those were the, the, the first real main people. And then, uh, Adam Bunny, uh, who was a friend of Brennan's, uh, wanted to be the, the lighting guy. And so I think it was in about 2000 that we, uh, borrowed maybe like 10 grand from my dad and bought, for intelligent lights so that we at least had somewhat of our own light show when we went on the road. I want to point out that in the startup comparison, you're receiving some outside funding here. Yeah. And it's yeah. a big part of scaling too and then growth. And sometimes it's just hard to do. Um, yep. I would imagine it's even harder as a band. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, the, I, I think that to, to point out the bigger thing, we didn't incorporate until I think 2001. And so, uh, what were you classified? Were you just like salt, like partnership, like here's, a sole proprietor? Here's, here's a really basic problem. I don't even know, but we were reporting all the income on my social security number. Oh, wow. So what ended up happening was I got audited because we had, you know, I reported $117,000 of income with $85,000 of expenses, which yeah. was real. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's a good, it it's a up. good lesson 
to show you yeah. that you need to get the business side of that together. I always, ASAP. Talk, I always talk about not creating a ball of rubber bands, which is exactly what you did. You have <laughs> yeah. to unwind them at some point. Oh, yeah. and so that cost me hours and hours of, you know, getting stuff together to deal with that instead of working on music in 2002, you know? Well, now, now, and what, and we don't have to talk about it too long, but now it's like the opposite end of scaling. Cause you don't, you have to, you now earn income in 40 different States or something like that. Right. Right. So you talk about scalability and I bet that was something that probably wasn't as anticipated. Yeah. It, or, it, or at that point, did you, were you already aware of it or were you getting audited by 40 different States? <laughs> no, fortunately it was just a federal audit. So it was only one, but For, the, the yeah. people usually don't put the word fortunately yeah. in front of that. But yeah. yeah um, but anyway, yeah, so we, we really had a, like nine of us, I guess. It was, you know, mm-hmm. it was sound, lights, and manager. And those were the, those were the, the you know, the, the nine basic people that from about 2000 to 2002 that were, that were running. And then uh, Don Richards stepped on as mm-hmm. our tour manager. And it was funny because he was just driving around, following around the band. And like some nights we'd have him sell merch. And then eventually, you know, we're just like, dude, you're just like going around with us. Do you want to actually work? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So, so he, that's how you apply for a position at Humphreys <laughs> McGee. If you are interested, you go to enough shows that they will eventually put you to work. <laughs> so, uh, that, am I qualified? Cause I feel like I'm unemployable. <laughs> I don't know if you actually, I'm, I, 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 I want to respect our friendship and I don't know. <laughs> I, I advise people not to hire friends or family. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so all this stuff happened, you know, we, we, as I mentioned, we bought the van in 2002, um, and we put 160,000 miles on it in two years. Um, (laughs) so yeah, we were, we were flying around in that thing all over the country and just doing as much groundwork as we could. Um, and so one of the other big things, you know, is our, uh, as I mentioned, you know, our primary source of income was, was touring was you realize that if you go somewhere once you've made that initial investment, you should probably go back again. Right. So you better choose wisely where you're going and, okay. and how you're doing it so that and you can, when. yeah. And when, so you can logistically do it. Obviously, you know, there are places, college markets that you're only going to want to go to when school is in session or and, when they're not having an 80,000 person football game at right. the same time as your show. Right. Yeah, exactly. You have to look at all these, all these other factors. Oh, um, you know, yeah, the uh, well, the way spring break works here, everybody leaves on Wednesday. Right. <laughs> you well, know, we, we've <laughs> talked about this some because another thing too is you sometimes take the low hanging fruit mentality and maybe go to Florida when it's the middle of the summer right, or right. like a different time or like you know like like I don't know it's it's everyone wants to play in Florida on in January. Right. Yeah. A lot of it is um, is is trying to remove factors of competition and giving yourself the best chance for people to show up. Simple, so it's just simple market analysis. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and the same thing goes for, uh, I don't know you if know, it's simple, but yeah. y- you'll notice we, um, you know, we typically have a run in the Northeast or in the Midwest in January or February. Mm-hmm. And it's for the same reason, all these people are here. They still want to go out and do things, even though the weather might be miserable. Um, these people don't just all sit at home. Well, and, <laughs> so. and those are the, and you know, with dealing with what you guys deal with uh, on a, when it comes to touring, you, there are a lot of variables. Like for example, it's a little overcast and I don't think it's going to rain here in KC, but the show's outside. That yeah. can have a pretty profound effect yeah. if, <laughs> if you are expecting some walk up 
ticket purchases. We, we definitely took a risk booking the show outside on uh, Thursday, October 4th. But in booking that, we looked at what the average annual, annual weather is. I looked back at the past three years. What was the weather like on October 4th? Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we. So Joel also gives weather advice as a walking <laughs> almanac. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, and, you know, those are the kind of things that can uh, greatly affect the outcome um, anytime, I guess. So how do you guys look at it when it comes to the product? Like, is just every show, it's individual product that you put out, like on some level, because obviously you need people to show up. Exactly. Yeah. I think we, we approach each day as its own thing. And a lot of times when we're trying to put together a set list or what we're doing, we look back at the past three times we've played in this market okay. and we'll see what we've played, what we haven't played and, you know, try to keep mixing it up so that, uh, the idea is that you want your entire audience to be fam familiar with your rotation of songs. You don't is want it, them. Is to it just... too late for me to put in my requests for tonight? <sighs> I, Go ahead. I told my wife that, and this is how I got Jill to agree to come tonight, um, is that you would do all songs by Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, uh, I there was a Fallout Boy, Blank One Eighty Two, and uh, then some, and then some of the songs from Hamilton. This is a great idea. It shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> we're 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 really quick learners over here. Oh my god! Um, I, and by the way, if you're going to do that, I want you to tell me because I'm not going to come to the show tonight. <laughs> okay, so look, let's fast forward to some now kind of stuff because, and you know, like I think we could probably talk about this for like ten more hours, and maybe we will. Maybe <laughs> we won't, but. So now it, you handled the, you're handling the challenge of scalability. Um, here we are at this point. We're 15 years later in this time in this timeline. Um, I've seen you guys take a noticeable jump. Like you're talking about what we're we're in 2004 at that point. A few years later, I saw you at what the 930 Club. Sure. And yep. and and now you guys, when you go there, you actually do a couple shows. Or you have at some yeah. point, right? Well, and even more recently, we played the uh, the new club in uh, DC called Anthem, and that's a that uh, looked like a nice place. It's awesome, but it's that a, was a bigger venue, right? Five five thousand person venue, and we had about three thousand people show up on a Thursday, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's something we'll be looking at in the future to you know possibly do some sort of destination show, destination event. Um, you know, once you get to that point where you're in the couple thousand people coming out. Um, you can you can kind of you can kind of expect that that is going to be the norm, and then also set up things to where you're getting more travelers coming in if you're playing there, you so, know, for a New Year's Eve run or for a Halloween run. Now or you something don't like you don't that. do 160 shows a year anymore, but you guys do we still don't. play a lot. We do about 85 now, and so um, while you scaled up, you scaled down. In some right, regards. right. Well, and and part of it is kind of that's um, hard to sustain. 160 shows is a lot. Yeah, we it's a lot of travel. We wouldn't have been able to do that. And I should say that back then, when we were doing 160 shows, I, I said we were going month to month, and so we would also identify. We lived in Chicago at that point, and we would identify a couple places we could do each month where it's like, okay, these guys are going to give us a, a three or four or five thousand dollar guarantee. Let's go play that show, and then we will use that to help, you know, offset. Let's try to play Missoula, and we might only make a thousand bucks that night. But we got to keep expanding the market so that we can tour, what like we're doing now, where we're going all around the country and playing different places, but pretty much just playing 
playing places once a year, once every 18 months. So overall for the business, you've also found some additional ways to create revenue. Um, you did, I felt like we mentioned early here in this episode, talking about selling the show, like right. the recording of the show. Um, and I think that was helpful when you guys started doing that. Absolutely. Right? And we, we, you know, we, merch we started, like we started by selling hard copies of the show, like Matt was saying, where you could walk out of the concert with CDs and throw it in your car and re-listen to what you just and, heard. And let me describe that. So the purest form of sound that you're going to get in a recording comes right off the soundboard. Yeah. And so literally, and this is, this is like when, I mean, this is like when CDs came out, it's still pretty cutting edge. I don't, I have never been to another show in that era that would have given me this option. And I thought it was freaking awesome. So here it is, here goes the recording, literally the show ends. And now they have to start firing up the CD burning towers. Yep. And, uh, that was good the way that that came out. And I thought that was very unique. So you're finding more ways to do that, but one step further with all these recordings. So right now I subscribe to your annual, I, I am one of your annual music subscribers. You guys, I think this is awesome. And the foresight, whether you, I mean, you couldn't have thought of this 20 years ago, but to have all these recordings, you're able to still get some, I, I was talking to Ryan about this a couple of years ago. I, I call it perpetual gate revenue. Right. And I, I love it because I get, because now it's back into this streaming delivery of stuff. I So tonight's show sometime in the next 24 hours will be available on, on the live stream. Right? And, and typically, um, so we, a couple things going on tonight, all this, right. you know, jump right into that. Speaking of live streaming, we, we have yeah. a, uh, uh, probably about half of our shows, including uh, this weekend's run, which is Kansas City, Madison, and Chicago, we're going to uh, live stream a webcast. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so, the couch tour, <laughs> couch tours, yeah. what the kind of more informal with, with the, oftentimes the tagline of pants optional, <laughs> um, yeah. which is is not at the show. For those of you that not at the show, don't get people, confused. You, pants are optional if you're watching it from your couch. But yeah. However, if you do get thrown out for taking your pants off at the show, you can then go to your home and stream it with your pants off. So that's true. And know. if that happens, uh, submit your ticket stub to Joel. No, just kidding. Don't do that. Um, but anyway, uh, this has become a really crucial way for us to kind of keep our audience interested Engaged. around the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, so if we only play the Pacific Northwest once a year, those people maybe will stream more shows because they know, okay, well we can, you know, hang out at home and watch this. And uh, so the, it, it's been a huge thing for us to uh, kind of keep, keep people engaged. And then also with social media, you have more people talking about it, which yeah. also helps um, just raise awareness. Now you've been doing this for a little while. I mean, yeah. The way, a, and you, are you partnered with someone on that? Is there a company that does that? We I, are. We've been doing it with uh, with tour gigs for okay, the, that's uh, right, for tour the past gigs. five years. And yep. that, is that tourgigs.com? Like where can I get yep, the show? Exactly. Tourgigs.com. Yep. And, and those are, you can buy them per show or sometimes in a bundle. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. They're typically around, I would say $15 a show. Or, they're really high quality. Yeah. They yeah. Really and are. then the other thing is now we have the option of uh, streaming it on demand. So, you know, you can, uh, you can buy it. And then if it's, if you know, you have something going on and you need to watch it at a different time, you can do that. So I, I think so those that's of a, you at the show trying to record it, I don't want to watch your crappy YouTube version. I will go to tourgigs.com. <laughs> right. yeah. So put your right. phone down and let right. me see the show. Um, but, um, to go back to the actual recording part of it, um, in about, I think it was 2009 or 10, we moved out of the, uh, selling CDs at the show phase mm-hmm. and into the, 
um, into the in, right into yeah. the downloads and and streaming. And so, and in regards um, to recording, you guys are your own label, right? We are, yeah. Nothing too fancy. Music is our is our record label, so we're in charge of all the content. We own all the masters of everything, which is also really helpful. Where, Something. Where do need. I submit my mixtape? Can I give that to you? I'm going to give it to you after I'm, the show. Yeah, I'm sorry to tell you we are not promoting anything other than I'm freezing geek. You haven't point, heard so. my <laughs> shit. All right. So, uh, so, so this is uh, through nugs.net. And what are the benefits of having of doing this yourself? There's some upside and some downside. Yeah, well, I think you know you can control all the content, and obviously you've removed a lot of the middleman sort of stuff where you're you're losing some of the revenue there. Um, obviously, you might not have the the huge market reach. Um, that uh, a major label or some big company might have. However, you know, you also may get lost in the shuffle of not yeah. being the biggest revenue earner in there. So they don't really care. And they're going to want a pretty significant portion. Of yeah. Set. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, as a result, we have um, our, our front of house engineer now, Chris Mitchell, uh, you know, records and tracks out all the shows live and he uploads them to the site with uh to nugsnet within like the hour and typically within two to three hours that show is going to be up and available so it's not quite that immediate response time anymore but it's really oh, crucial it's enough it's Close really enough. crucial to have have it up there within 24 hours because and otherwise, that's what i listen to a lot because you know i listen to music all day so and and you know so a lot of times you're just putting something on in the earbuds and just wanting a, a little a, a little fresh take on right. something and right. and you know as you mentioned before all the shows are different the songs um while parts of them i mean like lyrics and stuff are the same there's a lot of difference in them um but yeah i i enjoy that and the reason why from a consumer angle is you know when you guys were in the download phase i would have to download a show Right. And I'm having to look, I'm looking at like 10 of them. I'm like, which set list do I like? You know, and, and, and some of that, but it, it, for the same money, cause I m would maybe buy a show a month or something, but for that same amount of money, I can listen to a whole wide variety of them. Yeah. And, right. Yeah. Right. And, and it just, I, I think it's a enhanced user experience and it's better for the fans so, to keep them engaged with new fresh stuff. And just to explain what Matt is talking about, um, we now offer, I think it's like nine ninety nine or something for a, per month. Yeah. Or, to or have I think it's 99 bucks a year. 99 bucks yeah. a year to have access to um, the Nugsnet site, which is not it's just... It's not just you. It's not just all of Humphreys yeah. McGee. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like it's like 20 different bands. And so, you know, you can stream our, all of these artist shows from here. So it's really, if you're into the live music thing, it's a, it's a pretty cool value. There, there's, uh, and there's a wide variety, like Pearl Jam's in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So... Um, um, so I want to turn a little bit um, to, to one other sort of aspect of this, and we'll move into it um, via the Hall of Fame releases, oh, which I, I know it. is love something it. that you like. So a love big it. part of, I think, why people keep coming back to what we're doing is fan engagement. Yep. And, you know, it can start in the beginning as when your show's over and you're, you know, let's say in 1999 and we were playing for 200 people. Um just hanging out, you know, either sitting on the front of the stage or walking out into the crowd and just talking to people. Yeah. Um, you guys have always been very humble and outward. Yeah. I, and I've and, spent a lot of time with you after shows too and watched that. And, and, and these people are often in different states of inebriation. <laughs> yeah. and, true, and, you know, true. And, and I do want to commend that because I think that that's part of the relationship. For sure. And, you know, for some artists, it's not as natural as others. So yeah. I, th I think that's, that's something that, you know, you kind of got to manage your own, 
um, your own willingness to do that. But the Hall of Fame albums, what we did was um, curate from the fans each year. Uh, we've done this now since 2010. Let's back up because it's like a tournament. It's on, in a sure. way like yeah. you say, okay, look, um, here's the sections that we thought were some of our better moments, right? Well, we don't even start with that with the Hall of Fame. With the Hall of Fame, it's a wide open voting. Okay, and so, so they can pick any song. The, the, yeah, so the fans are kind of, you know, on social media discussing amongst themselves, uh. what do we think are the best things that are on here? And so now we've we've opened it up to two different rounds of voting. So we'll we'll take that first round of where so everything is everything is an option. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and then try to get that down to about 40 or 50 of what they think the best are. And, then, and then there's another round of voting. So there are two rounds of voting. And um, and I would say like, you know, there may be one or two things that somebody in the band is like, you know what, the improv in this was great, but like my voice was cracking or, you know, somebody made a really obvious mistake on something. We don't want to put that out. Was it the keyboardist? Usually the keyboardist. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so each year we'll put out what is essentially ends up as kind of a fan curated, yeah. uh, release. And that is available digitally, which, you know, mm -hmm. it already is available digitally, right. all these things separately. But then we also put things out on vinyl. Yeah. And and I have those. Actually, I like them because uh, it's not that I listen to vinyl. They come out like I have the green records. There's one. The last yeah. one was orange. Um, and I frame them. I put them up. They make. Uh, and by the way, they're well thought out because if you put a little light behind them, they glow and just like really <laughs> right. cool stuff. Yeah. And, you know, like I think it's just a nice little touch. Um to go with it, but yeah. But yeah, so I think that was something that we kind of realized as we, as we went along that the sort of fan engagement thing does matter. And, you know, if we can, if we can do it in, in different areas and we've and, talked about that in, in terms of uh, the, using the phrase tribe building, right. Like Seth right, Godin spoke right. about tribes yep. was, and by the way, I really want to thank you for bringing that up. It was probably a year ago when we were talking about that. Cause I actually read the book and I got into it and I realized Oh, wow. There, this is really, I I've taken it a lot of components of that into the business. And, you know, I think that we can, okay. What well, you said a few things is like, not everyone's going to like what you're doing. Yeah. Right. They, but they deserve their opinion. Like, and, <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to not engage it. Like, cause some, you know, some people are just haters. Some people aren't, but the fact the whole concept of tribe building was, and by the way, Godin in that book called Tribes mentions the Grateful Dead right away and talks about the sense of community and building this uh, feeling that the uh, that the interaction with the other people that are there are is is really key to your brand evolution because there are people that are going to be at your show tonight that uh, and they love the band but they let's be realistic a big driving factor of them also going is because there are people that they want to see there as well. People that they've interacted with, maybe people they haven't seen, maybe they're travelers that are coming in from other things. And it's created the sense of community, which has even resulted to having you have like fans get married. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, like, for sure. And you know, we, we do like when we have an album come out, we'll do record signings and we'll do various VIP events through the year where we talk to people. And yeah, we've had tons of people come up and say, I met my significant other at your show or like, you know, it's always fun to hear people say, Oh, you know, I, I live in New York, but 
I, I met these people in Denver, and now whenever you guys play out here, we all come out to Denver. Whenever we play in New York, they come out and visit us there. So those sort of um, those connections between people that you know you feel like okay, we've fostered a cool sense of community that mm-hmm. has added value to their lives beyond right. the concerts themselves. And I think that is like. I don't know. That's something that was an absolutely unintended consequence of us starting that I don't think we really thought about. I mean, you know, yeah, we're focused on the music and just trying to put on a good, fun show for people to check That's out. That's where it's got to start, though, because if that doesn't exist, then no one's coming and no one cares. And, and you know, you talk about the passion of doing things. And, you know, I feel pretty strongly on the subject of being passionate about stuff. You guys are clearly passionate about it. You care. I've always respected the fact that you guys really – give a shit about what you do on stage and, and the way you do it. And, um, you know, I know that it's, and look, after 20 years, it'd be easy to just say, Hey, we're just going to get up there and see what happens. And some of that, and, you know, I know there is a little bit of that. Yeah, that's, and some, that's and the sometimes, expectation. And sometimes that's good too. Yeah. You know, we'll break out of that regular mold. <laughs> um, there, you know, as we kind of wind down here, um, all right. So here you are 20 years in. Um, all right. There's a couple things. So like you just did like you talk about, okay, we just at the beginning of this episode, we're talking about playing, being excited that you sold out 200 seats. Uh, and that was in Boulder. Yeah. Okay. So right around the corner at Red Rocks this year, you had three shows at Red Rocks. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. We had about uh, 22,000 people there oh, over man. three nights. Man. So yeah. I, I went and saw you guys at Red Rocks one of the first years that you had been gone there. And actually here in the Startup Hustle studio is the concert poster <laughs> from that. It's right behind you. Yeah. And, and you did sign that, Joel. Um, but yeah, I remember that. And just watching that leap, that's a massive difference. Uh, right. 200 or 1,000 or 1,500 is way different than eight or 9,000. No doubt. And it's interesting because a lot, uh, there are a few different factors as to why that happened. Number one is, but I guess we should probably point out too, you just did three shows in Denver for new year's Eve last year. Too. Right, right. I went to those and there was what, 35, 4,000 yep. people. Yep. I, I, those are nice too, but that's, I mean, that's, that's not a concentric circle at that point, is it? It's like, Hey, we're here and we're coming right back. So Colorado has become a big market, probably the biggest market for our scene. I think a lot of it has to do. I can't imagine why. Yeah. Obviously in the beginning, (laughs) it's like, okay, the confluence of, you know, the sort of natural element. I feel like a lot of our fan base kind of is into the more, you know, doing mountain sports and, and, and that that kind of, we can say smokes weed. Well, and that, that's the next chapter of it, that once that became legal, then all of a sudden you have, you have not just, well, a draw for fans, but also a draw for businesses. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, I think 2000 people a week now moving to Denver. It's, it's really exploded. And so a lot of those people are people that are in our scene. And so you have your own beer out there, don't you? Is we do. That, is we that do. place in Colorado? Uh, Boulder, uh, Boulder Brewing made a, yeah, or nothing too fancy pale ale. I'm adding yeah. another tier. You know that you may have made it when you have your own beer and it's not, <laughs> and it's not made in your garage. Yeah. By so, the way, I drank a lot of that over New Year's. It, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to give my stamp of approval. It was good. <laughs> nice. but, but you talk about the, the parallel and the verticals, like that was the beer that was sold at the venue. Right. Did right. you do that at Red Rocks too? Did they we did. You? Okay. We did. 
Um, so, you know, it's hard to get those kind of deals because a lot of the major beer companies have a kind of stranglehold on, you yeah. know, what the, that vending business. I just watched a documentary called Beer Wars that was talking there about that. And it was about shutting down the little guy and some stuff like that. But I think the, the, the bigger reason for our growth in Colorado was kind of our approach to it. And it was that we would invariably try to sell out the smaller venue before we made the move to the bigger venue with like mm -hmm. one exception being when we first played the Fillmore, uh, in Denver. And one of the things that we did when we, when we started to move into playing the Fillmore was we got rid of all the other shows. We stopped playing Boulder. We stopped playing Fort Collins because we knew we needed all these people yeah. to come to that, that one that, show. That concert poster that from that show at Red Rocks, the next night we were at the Boulder theater. Okay. So was yeah, like the 4th of July. I exactly. Yeah. yeah. So for a while we were doing those where we would play, you know, a smaller venue after the big one. Um, and then we kind of ditched that too, and then just moved to playing two nights at Red Rocks. And now we're playing three nights there. Right. Um, and then some, and somewhere, and at some points along the, the timeline as well, you've played for as many as what, 40,000? 35, right. 40,000 yeah. people at um, big, big festival at, at Bonnaroo. Um, we played for about 40,000 people when we played there in 2014 on the main stage. I think people and are going to want to know this. What's it like when you look out off the stage and there's 40,000 people looking back at you? Is that weird? <laughs> it's uh, it's a little wild. I mean, you know, I honestly, when we're on stage, I, I don't really think about the audience as much. I'm more focused on, um, you know, with six people on stage, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And, and that, that, uh, you're right. It adds to complexity. Do, <laughs> do shows like that, um, or even a, even a, a venue full at a place like Red Rocks, does that ever make you nervous anymore? I get way more nervous playing a solo show by myself than because I, your than I do are, with the band. Out, yeah. out in front of everyone well, if they are. I think part, partly that, and partly also just that after 2,400 shows, there's such a level of trust of, yeah. We know that the you know the lowest level of performance we're going to put out is still way up here now. Yeah, you know we, we, that was one of the big things I think that you guys we, are you guys are really really good. Like I mean like I, and you know I always bring like random people that I, and I have to warn them too. I'm like okay look we're going to go to the show and and it's going to be a little different. And at some point you might even think a spaceship is landing in front of you because that's a fair, a fair assessment. Sure. But, you know, I think that, that, you know, the people that I've, I've brought with are like tonight, my guest, Andrew Morgans, who's a regular here on the startup hustle podcast. He loves music. He's going to help with some stuff later, but, uh, you know, he, uh, um, you know, everyone that comes with me is just like, Oh, wow. I mean, even if they're not really into that type of music, they recognize that what you guys are doing is pretty spectacular. So, and if you get a chance, you got to go check them out. You can see Umphreys, uh, you can go to Umphreys.com, U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S.com. Um, they're your music's all over, uh, any streaming music service. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, you, if you have iTunes, you can check out the hall of fame albums. You can check out the studio albums. Well, you, I'd recommend watching, uh, some live performances on YouTube as well, because yeah. then you can see the light show. A big part yeah. of what we do live also, uh, involves the production and the light show. And yeah. And, that, and, and that's where I want to kind of wrap this up. So what, so, um, you know, as so now you're doing some bigger venues and whatever, I, it, at what point, do you get to discuss, Hey, we're going to take the next big leap. Cause there's like, you look at like summer sheds and stuff like that. Like, right, I mean, right. is that something that 
Well, we've we've started to place some of the smaller uh, summer sheds, Those which still hold six or seven thousand people. Yeah, and I mean, there are even some really cool ones that That's are like lot. that are like three thousand, four thousand person ones. Is that like uh, Saint Augustine? Saint Augustine's about thirty five hundred. Okay. The uh, that you did the, that a couple nights in a row. Um, we have we did okay. we did just do it one time this uh, this past year. Um, that was a good show. It, I, I, that's one I've yeah. gone back to and listened to. And I, I even remember it. So you talk about the rigors of the road and Brendan says something and Brendan, is, uh, your singer, he's like, man, I woke up feeling like crap, but you guys have really energized me. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. You know, it's just Absolutely. Little stuff like that. Um, yeah. And again, I, I think it's mostly just a function of, you know, can we make this a, a profitable enterprise? And it all goes back to the scaling thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're playing a 2,500 person venue, and you can sell that out, you're going to make a bigger percentage of the profits that are going to come back to the band. Whereas if you play a 6,000 person venue and you only do 3,000 people, you may not do as well. So um, it's still this constant you know, measuring of how well we think we're going to do in any given market. And that's kind of how we pick these things. you know. And sometimes for the summer tours, we'll team up with a different band. We've done it with STS-9. Um, We've had Modest Yahoo, G Love, uh, and, the and, Disco Biscuits, a few, and the, and the festivals, right, and the festivals too. And, that well, we'll and go the play. festivals are important because doesn't that expose you to a whole uh, potential? Well, I, I feel like that the festivals you go to now, yeah, okay. One thing that I've always noticed is when you look at a festival and you look at the poster for it or the ad for it. Um, where are you on that? Right, right. And well, you, like you could like go over the years and like look at the climb. You're like this little tiny print <laughs> name down at the bottom, or maybe you're up here at top. But you're doing some really cool festivals now, like Lock In. Yep, Lock In. Uh, we've done. You know, Summer Camp is one of our annual ones. That's in Illinois. Um, that's a really fun Memorial Day mm-hmm. event. Um, you know, we've done things like Lollapalooza, Austin City Limits, Electric Forest. Um, let's see what else. I mean, those those are probably the, uh, the the biggest ones that we've been a part of. But like you said, yeah, it, it does help expose uh, expose us to new people. I mean, there are millions and millions of people who don't know who Humphreys McGee is. So that's always going to be a challenge: is to you know, can we find a way to put ourselves in front of new ears? And you know, we we found a lot of different ways to do that. One of them was uh, working with the uh, ESPN show Around the Horn. Yeah, there's probably a lot of people here who. Uh, watch or have watched that show and uh we hear the theme song we linked up with them to to, uh to record the their theme song for them and then you have a song on gray's anatomy or something we did yeah they played uh uncle wally in one scene in gray's gray's anatomy but um uh around the horn will also uh use some of our uh like bad friday or Mm -hmm. uh i think it was one of the ones from one of our more recent albums that they also used um and using that as bumper music too so um there are just so many different ways that, you know, you can get the awareness factor out there. And I think, you know, it kind of comes back to that. So, um, should we talk real quick about the name? Yeah. Let's, let's end it with that. So, So, but, but I want to, I want to talk about why that's important though. Cause yeah, one of the things we always try to visit is it's not just like how it's about why. And, and, uh, so in my book, Million Dollar Bedroom, I taught like that this is the equivalent of choosing your domain name or your business name. And like some of that matters. It can be length. It can be the member, the ability to remember it. And then here's the thing. You get to a point where, all right, look, this is it. You're stuck with this. Yeah. And you've made your decision and now you got to play your hand. So Umphreys McGee, first off, how did that even happen? 
Well, it's unfortunately not a great story. Uh, it's really just we tried to come up with band names and picking we, a band we, name is like the hardest freaking thing uh, ever. It's the worst. Well, especially because we didn't really know what we were going to be when we started. So, um, and so Umphreys McGee is the phonetic pronunciation of uh, a cousin of Brendan's, who's our who's our singer. So we just stumbled upon this. We're like, okay, that's that sounds unique enough, and. And I think the Irish components in Notre Dame and sure, some of that there's hurt. a little bit. But well, but then also we've had people come up there like, oh, we thought it was Irish music, you know. They, yeah. So it does sound a little like an Irish bar band. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and and then and then also, isn't it marked possessive as if McGee is yes of belongs Humphreys? to Humphreys? Yeah. So is I don't, that grammatically correct? Who knows? I mean, you know. There, there are lots of interesting decisions that happen. For but, those of you that don't see Joel's face right now because you're only listening, we will eventually – we are recording this as well, and you can probably uh, – yeah, we might just make clips of that or GIFs. So here's the thing that I would say, though, is the most important sort of double-edged sword aspect of this. The negative side is Umphreys McGee. Nobody can spell it right the first time they mm-hmm. try, so I just spell it out for them. Right. And then also like, uh, okay. Someone asked me which one's Humphrey. Yeah. It's like pink Floyd, man. Yeah. Which Um, one's pink. So, uh, so you have that. Nobody can spell the name. It's this weird, these weird words that I think probably turn off 25% of the people before they've even heard a note of the music. That's bad. Um, but here's the, that's true. I do. I definitely do. People, discount us because they're like, well, that's a goofy, stupid name, you know? Um, but I, you know, there, I, I think of like some of the good band names out there, like, you know, vampire weekend or tame Impala. And it's like two words that don't necessarily seem like they would go together. Uh, Umphreys McGee fits that. Yeah, it does. But yeah. unfortunately it's too goofy. Those yeah. are like cool, you yeah. know? Um, so that's my advice for, if you're naming your pan, find, make it cool, make it cool and find a couple words that, that sound cool and look cool, but don't necessarily go together. Now here's the advantage to Humphreys McGee. If you write in umph, U-M-P-H into your Google search engine. Yeah. All you have to do is write f- those four letters and Humphreys McGee will be the first thing that comes yeah, up. Yeah. I don't see a lot of keyword competition for the term Humphreys. If you only get to U-M-P, you're going to get umpires as well. Mm. But, um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, so that's that's another big thing, though, because, you know, like, for instance... Uh, what were some of the options that didn't win? Oh, I don't Do you remember. Know. I, I don't know. The the I mean, I remember a really horrible one that I came up with, which was South Band. Oh, God, that would yeah. have... Yeah, that not only... Well, not... <laughs> Sorry, not only is that not that great, it was actually like regionally specific. So <laughs> you would have, that, would, that would have been like wanting to open a national franchise and, yeah. and calling it KC, whatever. Yeah. You know, all right. But um, but to give I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be yeah. really <laughs> But to give a couple examples of you know what's something that sounds cool but maybe is a little harder to find, like the band The National. Mm-hmm. You put in national and yeah. 40 different things come up. We had a friend's uh, band that was, their name was The Bridge, which yeah, sounds cool. They're actually good, but which, you Google The Bridge and that's tough. You know, that's actually something with uh, Matt Watson and I's business, Full Scale, that we had to consider. Because like Full Scale, if you type that in right. into Google, you get the Webster's Dictionary definition <laughs> of it. And so, Yeah. So, so yeah, I think, think about that. Think about, you know, you want something that's unique, but not too unique for whatever you're naming as your startup. 
I mean, but it's also at the same time, it's, I don't know, it's turned into some cool, uh, um, yeah. And the other unfortunate thing is this is important. You're Think also of- at the bottom of everything I scroll to. I'm like, damn it. I got to go all the way down to you. Think about your acronym. Yes. Um, and the, the reason that it stinks you for us is because um right we're, after that. we're, we're Notre Dame. ND and our biggest football rival is University of Michigan. Oh wow! UM. Um, I never, but even, I never even put that together. The the uh, the the biggest one that I've seen recently that is was uh, I guess it's Jimmy, the singer of Jimmy Eats World. Mm-hmm. He's like, we obviously didn't think about the acronym. Oh yeah, <laughs> JW. I mean, wow. Yeah, you know, I even give an example of that um, because, like, when you crunch uh, another thing too is when you crunch words together do words or do you spell other words right inside right. it and i give this example and uh, uh compasswholesalers.com it says asshole in the middle <laughs> and you know it's just like goofy little things right. that people don't think about and you know occasionally you see something <laughs> on facebook's like worse signs like, yeah. i have a picture of, when i went to cebu there is a re- there is it just still blows me away. It's called Boy Tits Bakery. <laughs> and I'm like, and congratulations if that just drove some business for you in Cebu, but that is a horrible name. And it's just like, my God, like, is that what you serve or whatever? So, well, Joel, what's what's coming down the road? The, you know, what you've got a tour coming up here. You guys are in Atlanta for New we got, Year's. We've got four correct? nights in Atlanta for New Year's at the Tabernacle, which is definitely, I'd say, a top five indoor venue for me. Yeah. Used to be the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. The, is that what it's cool? Is that like the Ryman? Because the Ryman was a church at one point. Oh, yeah. Uh, the the Ry- Ryman's I mean, in Nashville. The, the Ryman's great, but I would even put the Tabernacle above that because it's got these three levels of balconies. And mm-hmm. so as opposed, as opposed to the crowd getting further away from you, as they go back, it just goes straight up. And so it's like this wall of energy. And uh, I'm really stoked for that. We'll be there for four nights. Um, before four that, nights. yeah, four wow. nights, the 28th to 31st. We did five nights a few years ago, and that was a huge mistake. That's that's <laughs> a lot of work as yeah. a fan. Yeah. Do you know oh, that? oh, my like, God. It, I know. Like, even on New Year's, like, I, I actually came into your three New Year's shows with some strategy. I was like, okay, I'm going to drink on the middle night. Right, right. But because I didn't want to be super hungover on and travel home because I came home on the first. Right, right. And I was like, but yeah, so I definitely had a little strategy. Um, Some of it backfired. Um, Well, you got to go with the flow, you know? Well, I mean, we talk about being agile and adapting and different stuff like that. So um, and then, uh, that, you know, it's kind yeah, of doing, and we've, doing your thing. We've, we've got a couple new albums out this year. One thing that we did was we, uh, we had a big release oh, yeah. in January for, yep. uh, an album called it's not us. Wasn't that the surprise one? Uh, that was the, that was the one that we, uh, we, we did a big campaign for. And then the surprise one was it's you. And that came out in May and we did it without any, uh, any sort of, uh, you know, backing behind it and just, Midnight that night, we threw it up on uh, on Spotify and on you know iTunes and everything, and it was there. So it's it's still kind of cool to give you know your fans little surprises like that when they don't think they're coming. Okay, well, there's nothing better than a surprise album. Now you just need a diss track with either Eminem or like Machine Gun Kelly <laughs> or someone like that. So, yeah, yeah, and then obviously you're gonna we're gonna get out to the road. Um, do I get to sing tonight? Um, yeah, we'll be doing uh, your audition later. 
So oh, wait, I, no, I want to just go out. I, I, I don't require a rehearsal. I don't need anything. I don't even <laughs> so need low a maintenance. Wow. So what? So low maintenance. Well, I mean, anything I do is intended to try <laughs> to make everyone else's life easier. Well, so look, um, whether you're already familiar with Humphreys and hopefully a lot of your fans get a hold of this too, because I mean, realistically, I think that there was a lot of history here that we went over. Um, Absolutely. We're only 40 minutes over our intended <laughs> length here. So I said at the beginning, should we just do two pieces? But um, but it's, that's a tribute to the passion that you show for what you do. If you haven't listened to Umphreys before and you're just a listener of the Startup Hustle, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to Umphreys.com. I want you to figure out how to listen to these guys. Um, I want you to listen to a variety of things. Check out some of their live stuff. Like Joel said, check them out on YouTube, just wherever you can get a hold of it. Um, I will also put a couple links to uh, some of their stuff in the episode uh, notes. And well, anyway, Joel, thanks. Um, we're going to eventually at some point, we're going to have to take you down to a venue because we got to we got to rock <laughs> out tonight. And, That's right. Uh, um, good, the good news is the weather's going to be nice. And by the time our listeners have probably heard this, the show may have passed, but <laughs> you, you guys make it back to Kansas city every year. And for those of you listening all over the country, uh, you know, we have more listeners in California than any other place. All right. Actually. It's and my home, you, Venice beach. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So, well, Joel, let's get out of here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yep. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.